one of the early engineers we tried to hire, he just refused to work for us because he's like, I can't work in oil and gas. It's just waste. And um, one of our advisors at that time was like, why would you not want to work for a software that's helping to optimize the industry that you think has a lot of waste in it? And I was like, that is a great argument. And that engineer never did want to work for us still, but we were just, you know, that was like our goal is like, hey, we could make this more efficient. Well, uh, the thing I love about what you guys do is that it's like this, uh, you know, kind of like to me, at least, I mean, obviously you're in the oil and gas industry, so you probably, you know, it's second nature to you. But to me, it's like one of these sort of just under the hood, unsexy B2B niches where there's just so much money, so much opportunity to be made, but no one's or very few people are really like that. Very few people know it and attack it. And I love those B2B niches. Like I love those sort of like undercover, you know, massive uh, opportunity niches. Uh, so let's let's kind of dive in and talk more about what you do. I'd, I'd love just maybe like the 30,000 foot view of Engage, you know, what the platform does, how you ideated it. And then maybe we could even riff on like some other opportunities in B2B and what else, you know, might be out there, whether it's oil and gas adjacent elsewhere. I'd just kind of love to hear your thoughts on all that. Yeah, so I guess I'll start real quick with the company's background. Uh, I guess a little bit of my background. So I'm a mechanical engineer. Uh, before I did that, I was in the Army. I came over to oil and gas in 2013, uh, working for, at then, what was our parent company, which was Engage Management. And that focuses on um, non-productive time in oil and gas with field consultants, like directly in the operation. And non-productive time could be anything from a complex testing sequence that has no standard operating procedure to moving a drilling rig from point A to point B, to even like accounting processes and, and allocating costs to wells. So with oil and gas, um, crude prices are very important to like what people are doing in operations. So in 2015, crude prices fell through the floor and a lot of those contracts we were working were nice to haves and they started closing out. So me and the two other co-founders were kind of like, well, what can we do? What do we know? How do we stay out of the field? Let's start there. And we're like, well, let's build an application. And we knew this big non-productive time and this tracking of services on what was referred to as a field ticket. And just think of a field ticket as a receipt. Um, I always use the easy explanation. Have you ever been at a bar or restaurant and you see a delivery of alcohol show up or a delivery of food show up? Everything's done on this carbon copy paper. One's for the, the customer, um, who's the bar or restaurant, one's for the driver that dropped it off, and one's for the service provider that provided it. Well, oil and gas is set up very similar to that scenario where the operators are the wellheads, so that's your Chevrons, your Occidentals, your BPs, they don't have a lot of service providers that work for them or day-in, day-out laborers. They have a few that maintain the well. That's why they're called operators because they operate the wellhead. But they service contract everything out, service provider or service providers. And with that comes this receipt. I mean, to this day, there's still people taking that carbon copy receipt put it into a mailbox or even to a coffee can that's zip tied to a stairwell. And that's how they're doing their, you know, their daily cost, their services provided and tracking this transaction. Um, and we're talking hundreds of thousand dollars a day in just one small region. So this is um, a, a very big pain point for a lot of our customers. And in 2016, we're like, hey, let's launch a software. None of us were software guys. It's actually funny, your uh, name, like cash flow, we called it cash E at that time, right? Like, oh, there's an E at the end, it's cash E. No, it's like, no, 
um, I had one economic or two economic guys, and then I was an engineer. So we're like, hey, let's figure this out. We went to some of our network that was in software. We figured out how to build this. I took on the product role. They took on more of the CEO, C, um, RO roles. And we basically said, let's focus on this digital transaction. Let's get this out of a mailbox. Let's get this out of spreadsheets. And as soon as we had that in place, like our version one in 2017, we're like, man, look at all the data we're getting. Like, let's start doing like real data analytics and figure out how we could start removing human touch points. And since 2017, when we made that first transaction digital, that's been our focus now. It's th- we say we're an intelligent field operation software. Um, we used to say we're a digital field ticketing software. So we, we've kind of changed our whole, um, I don't say we pivoted, we just realized the data that we had and what we could actually leverage it for um, as we move through our life cycle of the business. That's awesome. So uh, I understand all the words you're saying. I don't understand <laughs> okay. the industry. So, or, yeah. you know, some of it's foreign to me, like why even, you know, like using paper, you know, I've never... Uh, you know, I did a sales job. I, I sold a Fios door to door when I was young. And uh, that was the only time I ever used those three la- three layer papers that you're talking about, like filling out the order form for, right. you know, like internet service. But uh, yeah, it's like a foreign concept to me doing, uh, uh, you know, doing business that way. So I understand the words you're saying, it doesn't like compute in my brain, uh, but it makes total sense. So you're saying that before you guys launched this platform, the only option was to just do like paper and then you're mailing paper back and forth. You're sticking stuff on someone's desk. Like how often were mistakes being made and how often were, uh, you know, things just slowed down because the paper isn't in the right place at the right time. Yeah. So um, just going back to the carbon copy paper, right? The reason oil and gas still works on that is one paper works, right? Pen and paper works. Unless I guess you're in outer space, right? Then you got to just invent a pencil again. But um it works. I mean, it's plain and simple. It works. You could track it. But we did some initial research when we started this, and it's about a 33% error rate on just doing paper um, transactions, tracking things on paper. And you get that down to about a 3% error rate as soon as you digitize it. So that's a huge reduction in error rate. Um, yeah, order and, of magnitude there. Yeah. And it's um, and we, we can actually still prove to that to this day. Actually, one of the first case study we did, I took 100 tickets that ran through our platform. We had the 3% error rate and I typed them to a spreadsheet. And I had about a 15% error rate just typing them into a spreadsheet. So you could see just taking that paper out of a mailbox, trying to type it into a spreadsheet, there's also error rates. You're looking at paper, is that a four? Is that a nine? You know, um, Is that a decimal place? Is that a comma? A lot of times that stuff's just hard to maintain. And then in addition, just not even mailing things around, people drive this paper around and get approval signatures from the requester, whoever requested the service at that oil and gas operator, and they can't invoice until they get that signature. So you can see just the day's sales outstanding of just trying to get your daily activities approved to be billed um, is just a huge um, problem area that we were like, oh, this is going to be, you know, a great, a great non-productive time to tackle um, where we get easy return on investment for, you know, small software package. How big is this industry? Uh, I mean, it's oil and gas is huge, I, I would imagine. But yeah. like the, the part of it that you serve, do you serve the entire oil and gas industry or is there a specific segment? Yeah, so we focus on upstream. So upstream would just be the getting the oil out of the ground or, you know, it could be condensate gas oil. There's several byproducts to get out of the ground. So that focuses on really the construction of the well site, the drilling of the well site, the fracking completions that you've heard of, and then the the 30-year production of a well site. So that's the upstream. 
So that alone, that total adjustable market is millions of dollars, if not billions. Um, what we run into is we have a hard time getting the total adjustable market because some people are just fine with paper. When you <laughs> say, I'm sorry, when you say uh, millions, if not billions, uh, you mean like for the software part oh, of it or? Oh, no, just just total like um, total spend, um, software spend in those but like the actual market itself, like the revenue that that market is producing, like the upstream oil market. I mean, that's like a trillion dollar. Correct. Guess, yeah, yeah. Right? It's a trillion dollar industry. That is correct. But I was just saying that their software spend um, in those in that upstream market. Okay. Because they, the funny thing about oil and gas companies um, or operators is they are very tech forward in certain aspects. So the whole drilling phase, they could drill 10,000 feet horizontal to within a few feet and horizontal you're like wait how do you drill horizontal um but they could do it right this is kind of the flex you know the last stick in the the drill pipe they could get it over um and go essentially two miles horizontal but that's like that's hardware tech though like so there's there's a different mindset between like a physical a physical world tech like hardware it's like real life you can touch it and see it versus like data or in software it's like a different type of like way of thinking and mindset Right. And that, that was our, one of our biggest barriers to entry is one is, hey, paper works. I had one, one guy in the field tell me I could write on paper in the rain. I was like, that's interesting. You're going to have to show me that one because that's great. <laughs> um, and then two is like, yeah, the hardware, something that's a big expense, you know, like, oh, yeah, let's spend our money here. Let's not focus on this paper Excel spreadsheet process that's been proven to work uh, for years. So that was one of our first barriers to entry that we had to really get over. Um, that's where some of the error rates, um, case studies we did. Even then, we did some other case studies and some evaluation on, we had one customer that was doing what we referred to as hourly work. And just thinking of day laborers doing general maintenance is what we referred to as hourly work. And there's one technician by himself that was going to two work sites, which is just be where the well is producing. And they were getting two a day because it's really far out. It's really spread apart. Um, the roads are like just man-made. Now, I guess every road's man-made, but it's just like a, a you know, a lease road is referred to it. Just think of it as a dirt road going from location to location. There's ravines in the way. So they're getting about two, two jobs done a day. Once they get into our software, they were getting three jobs done a day because um, we were just able to give them simple geo-tracking just because we knew where they were on their cell phone and where their location was and which order to kind of work in in a row. So just taking that paper that they were doing before, making a simple application at that time for just field ticketing, leveraging some, you know, GS or uh, Google Map API is all we leveraged. We were able to give just data to people that they could then plan their day. They could do some route optimization, real low level. And the beauty of that was the service provider doing the work was able to charge for three jobs a day. So they were like, oh, this is great. And the oil and gas operator that was paying for the work were able to get a lower cost per job because the service contractor could do three in a day. So like both sides won on that scenario. And it was just from basically taking that paper, giving them a digital um, a digital field ticket and tracking that um, on the application with a simple Google API. Um, I love it, man. That's such an awesome story. So there, so before this, I mean, obviously these companies, they have this fancy technologies for drilling. So they're probably, they probably have some advanced software for like sensors and monitoring. I'm I'm assuming they had to have been using like ERPs. So they probably use like SAP or NetSuite or something to run their, their accounting and finance and, and uh, inventory and stuff like that. But uh, 
what other areas did they use software like this industry before, you know, pre 2017, when you guys came on the scene, what other software did this industry use? Or were they pretty much like Luddites besides like the ERP and like the, you know, hardware side of things? Yeah, so ERPs were big. Um, and that was actually one of our first initiatives. Was like, let's, let's integrate with ERPs, because we have this daily spend data that has to be entered in ERP. So that was one of our initiatives. Two is they used a lot of software for drilling um, or just well information. So how long it took to make the well, the construction of the well, um, maintenance activities throughout the well. So like basically CMMS style, um, like computer, computerized maintenance management software style um, software. And that was another thing is like, hey, we can take some of that, do that, integrate with some of that information, as well as build some of those features out in our application. So some of the customers that were doing that still on Excel, tracking maintenance, we were able to build out, a, like I call it a CMMS light in our system to track that information so they didn't have to do that on Excel. And then one of the biggest ones that we've connected with was the SCADA, um, which is a supervisory control and data acquisition software. Um, really just think of that as all of the tanks that the oil comes out to or out of the ground to and they store in, there was level, level sensors in these tanks. And these level sensors would transmit um, over radio frequencies uh, 15, every 15 minutes, every 30 minutes, the tank height. So you built the, the IoT integration for all that stuff? So actually, we kept it even a little bit more simple to that. And I, I, my engineers get mad at me when I say simple. It's, I guess it is very complicated. But <laughs> the original idea hey, is... Don't undermine like, those engineers, yeah. man. They're, yeah. uh, they're working hard over there. <laughs> they are. They are. I actually had to message one right before this to be like, hey, if I'm, I'm offline for a little bit, you better call me. Um, <laughs> but we took that data, the IoT data, and we were like, hey, because we know the date and time, we know the exact tank, and we know the level, we could generate flow rates. We could generate the ultimate, ultimate time to have a truck there, and we could actually kick out dispatches automatically. So knowing this tank has a flow rate, let's, and they use barrels and oil and gas, let's just say it's gallons, right? Let's say it's 500 gallons an hour, and a truck holds 5,000 gallons. Um, I know I need a truck here in 10 hours. You know, seems pretty straightforward, but doing that math, and then it's like, oh, I need another truck here in 10 hours, and another truck. So because the service providers that own those trucks do not work for the oil and gas operator, they didn't have that information, right? They didn't get that flow rate or tank height data. So we can now in our system, get that data from our customer, who's the oil and gas operator, generate that flow rate and predict when we need to get trucks there. So that way tanks don't get over, don't, tanks don't get too full, they get shut in, which is a, a loss of revenue for the oil and gas company. Trucks are not there too soon, which now we're getting more trucks on the road. And that's one of the things that we started doing this, we're like, hey, we can help with ESG information, scope three emissions, like reducing miles on the road. You know, we actually have one of our case studies on the website that we were able to reduce like 72 trucks a, a month off the road um, just from this predictive dispatch, which now also helps with road maintenance and, and all of those items that you can imagine these large trucks um, could um, cause the infrastructure. So it's kind of cool, kind of like, hey, what other software could we work with? I, I love this, man. This is so cool. Uh, you know, it's like you found all you found like a super niche. You know, you came out of this industry or you found a super niche for software. You found all the places where waste is happening and then just started fixing them with software and automation. Uh, I, I love I love that use case. It's so, so cool. Uh, can yeah, you share like, uh, oh, sorry, go ahead. 
Oh, no, I was just going to say, you bring up waste is I always tell the story because it, it just cracks me up. Oh, we mentioned engineers and I, you got to give them a lot of credit because they, they're just in the code working. One of the early engineers we tried to hire, he just refused to work for us because he's like, I can't work in oil and gas. It's just waste. And um, one of our advisors at that time was like, why would you not want to work for software that's helping to optimize the industry that you think has a lot of waste in it? And I was like, that is a great argument. And that engineer never did want to work for us still, but we were just, you know, that was like our goal is like, hey, we could make this more efficient. Um, you probably you probably are better off. I think, uh, you know, if uh, if someone isn't, you know, intrinsically aligned or like they just kind of like don't see the fit and the vision of the company sort of off the bat, like once you explain the mission and the vision and the, you know, what the company does, if they're not seeing it and they're not excited and a hell yes to join the team, in my opinion, that person's not the right fit. Like I, I almost want to like qualify people out when I'm hiring and interviewing so that we don't get the wrong people into the, you know, cause like, you, you know, how, how disruptive, like even a single person that doesn't align with the company vision and mission, how extremely disruptive they can be to the entire organization. Yeah. And I guess the, the cool part of that story, the reason I like it, it was, this was one of our advisors that um, helped us get into the tech industry that he got the vision early on, you know? So he was, he was like, Oh, I get the vision. Let's, let's help you guys build this. So that was a, that was the interesting part to that, that I really liked. Yeah. That's so cool. Um, I have a couple more questions. Uh, first one, can you kind of share like just generally how big you guys are? Like maybe just kind of rough order of magnitude revenue, headcount, just, you know, maybe like percentage of market that you own or. Yeah. So we, um, we do 4.5 million last year is what we did um, for revenue. Um, most of that, I think 80% was uh, traditional SaaS. Some of that was just one-off revenue. We have a DOD contract that we're working right now. Um, that's in a small business innovation research program. So that's more of like grant money and, and one-time revenue. And then yeah, currently so we have- I had, a, I had a guy on early in, in the cash flow uh, podcast that runs a whole research business off of Sibber. It's such a such like a, a niche. That's another one. Like if you figure out how to write and win those grants, it's like a volume play. If you figure those things out, that can be such an epic business uh, you know, revenue strategy as well. Well, actually the cool part about that is because you know, I'm talking about all this fluids we're moving around the oil, gas, oil and gas field. Um, we did a Sibber, we did Sibber phase one, Sibber phase two. And with that, we basically focused on move, moving jet fuel around the airfield. I mean, it's a very similar idea. Someone requests service, someone performs the service, someone reviews the final transaction. I mean, that's really our workflow, um, which would work for any industry. So it actually let us prove that we could go to other markets with our software with some minimal changes. A lot of those were just headers. Um, and get that up and running pretty quickly. So that was a, that was very exciting. We're actually towards the end of that. And we're trying to get that, we're looking to get that contract funded and keep that running um, because we're at the, towards the tail end of that Sibber program. And now we go to what's called a phase three, which is really just the open source contract or a, a sole source contract uh, to keep what you put in place running. Um, so it's very exciting. Is that your first Sibber? Uh, yeah, that was our first Sibber, yeah. We did a phase one, which was basically referred to- Did license. you win the first uh, proposal you wrote? We run the first phase one and the first phase two we wrote. Uh, we've done two additional phase twos, which we've gotten into this scenario called a selected, not funded, which means if we could find someone with budget, they could fund it and then we could still use that Sibber contract vehicle. So either you guys are incredibly lucky from what I understand about Sibber or I'm guessing it's probably the latter is that you just have like such an awesome solution and different way of doing things that the grant readers understand that. but. Uh, 
from what I understand about Sibber, it's like, you know, you write 10, you're lucky to get one usually. Yeah, we, we, we run our first one. I think one of the differentiators um, was myself. I'm a veteran. Um, we had two other developers that were also either at one point doing military tech work um, or were, was a veteran as well. So that that really does help set you apart just from like the key personnel, as well as the solution that we were bidding for. Um, we were able to get a lot of letters of support to say, hey, this is a pain point for us um, and we would like to look at it. So nice. those are like the two key differentiators on that. Sorry, I took us on a tangent there on the Sibber thing, but uh... that's the whole thing. Yeah, if you want to talk about Sibber, I could go all day. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, no, that was it was fascinating to us. Um, one of our business development um, VPs discovered the programs. We're like, hey, let's let's give it a go. Um, and then we did we did bring on like a tech writing contract firm to help us make sure our, we had our verbiage correct. Um, but they really did help. Yeah, you really did it right. I mean, it's. Uh... From what I understand, it's like very nuanced how to win those things. And a lot of people try and fail because they don't understand. It's like raising VC. It's like, you know, it's it's almost a full-time thing that you have to commit yourself to in addition to like being the CEO of your company. Right, yeah. The phase one, um, the initial proposal, that, that has to be just right. Once you get into the phase one, the phase two gets a little bit easier because the reduction in the size of the I don't call them contestants, but the the, um, the company is submitting proposals because the phase one reduces it to a smaller subset of the phase two. Only a, a smaller subset in that phase two gets memorandums of understanding, which is a customer in the military says, yes, I have a need and this is how I could use that funding with this company to meet that need. So those are like the, to get that phase two, that MOU is really important. And even the signature, the people that sign that MOU is very important. What's an uh, MOU? It's just a memorandum of understanding. That's where it's okay. like, this is how we're going to take this cyber money. And this is how we're going to implement it into this need. And the customer, the end user, and then the company all agree upon how that money will be allocated, the milestones and the time frame. And that's the real important portion of that cyber program that that is methodical laid out and actually realistic um, to kind of get into that phase two of the Sibber. Cool. I have another question, uh, but I wanted to let you finish answering the size question. You said you guys are about 4.5. You broke down to like 80% SAS, 20% Sibber. Right. Uh, and then was there like a second part to, I think maybe headcount or something you're going to. Yeah. So we actually um, are at 23 right now. And I want to say three of them are just some contract developers. Um, I might be 24 because we just, we just brought someone else on and just someone else left. So I might be right right off that number. Um, we were a little bit, about two years ago, we were a little bit larger. Um, we actually reduced our force. Um, we got some early Series A funding. And one of our, um, I guess one of our downfalls is we maybe grew a little too fast with that money. And we actually were like, okay, now we got to like downsize a little bit um, to make sure that we had a repeatable process and even a repeatable um implementation process, sales process, as well as even uh, get rid of some tech debt. So that way we could keep this easy to implement and make it scalable. So we actually downsized, focused on that last year. And now we're back into that uh, growth phase. So um, are you guys profitable now? I know we're still, we're still a little bit under profitable. That's why we wanted okay. to make sure we got it down. We make sure our processes are repeatable. And now it's, you know, it's, we got to go implement those processes. 
That's cool. Yeah, I mean, that, that's a great story, though. I mean, 2017, you guys, uh, you know, got kind of, you know, just even building and launching a product like what you have, I'm sure took a year, maybe two years to kind of get like a really good stable version of it out there. Yep. And then, you know, then you have to figure out sales and marketing. So <laughs> it's pretty awesome. I mean, you guys have gotten pretty far. And I think it's like, it's one of those things where, you know, when you kind of go, it, you know, it's compounding effects. So, you know, growing a business like this, you've gotten past, I think, the hardest points, getting to, you know, mid seven figures in revenue. That's probably, I think, the biggest hurdle. And now it's like, you can get the, that, like, there's an inflection point from what I've seen in SaaS where it's just going to like, you know, then it's, you know, next year you might do 10, then you might do 25, then, you know, you might do like 75 and it just starts compounding and uh, it gets big really fast. Yeah, that's what was real important for us last year to like, hey, we know we have a, we know we have a market. We know we have a product that works. Uh, we're actually approaching 1.5 million transactions on our production environment, which I'm very excited for probably per day? two weeks. Uh, no, just 100.5 total over the lifetime of the, of the product. Um, when you say transactions, is that like uh, like an HTTP transaction, like a server transaction, or do you mean like a ticket just, or? Yeah, just a ticket. So just think of those receipts. So 1.5 okay. million receipts ran through our production environment. Um, nice. Yeah, so it's kind of a big milestone for us. We're excited to hit it. Um, and uh, I've lost my train of thought there, but I think I basically was going on last year, getting a repeatable process in place. This year, we're going to implement that process and then get to that profitability, get to that that. Um, you know, inflection point as you were mentioning and, you know, see where we go. Dude, I'm really excited to to watch, watch your journey here. Uh, maybe like a year or two from now, we'll do a, a follow-up and, uh, and and see see where you're at. But I, I'm, I'm really excited to kind of watch this. The stage you're at is like so, so interesting. It just gets really cool, I think, from here on out. Yeah, and one of the cool parts of the stage you're at, just especially going back to that Sibber is, now we're starting to look at adjacent markets, you know, it's like, Hey, what else can we do? So, you know, we started looking at some construction work, you know, moving dirt around um, fuel on airfields, go with the DOD. So there's a lot of adjacent markets that are in this similar scenario that they have the customer and they have the service provider and they need this marketplace to track all of those transactions that are happening. And, uh, you know, the infrastructure is there. Uh, we've done a lot of this header customization for people that they just want to call something slightly different. Um, and, yeah, we're excited to see where that goes as well. There has to be, I mean, the industry you're in is huge. There has to be like so much more market share though that you guys can continue winning. I would have to imagine. Like the there's no competitor, right? Like the alternative for you is like they still do the carbon paper stuff. There, there's a few competitors. Um, they focus on a slightly different um idea. Some of them just focus on that fluid moving movement. Um, there is some that don't do any of the geo tracking from like a smart device. They just manually key that enter. So there is some competitors in the market, um, which I'm, I'm always excited about competition. One thing I said is in 2016, 2017, when we started this, anyone we talked to were like, I don't need that. I have a paper process. I have Excel spreadsheets. Now we get requests to go to like RFPs that, you know, are, you know, requests for information, requests for proposals. That was unheard of in 2017 for a field ticketing platform. Um, and that's exciting now because when we talk to people, they, they're like, yes, we realize we have a need. Um, we're just kind of like evaluating. I mean, you got the, the timing software. so right. If, if you would have tried to launch this, from what you're telling me, I would guess if you tried to launch this in like 2010 or 12, you probably would have hit too much headwinds on sales and marketing and you probably would have ran out, went out of business. And if you were too late, like if you tried to build this now, like there's already companies like you and I guess these other couple competitors that are like already like way ahead. So it's kind of, 
you know, it's there's a lot of catch up to do to try to build this now. So it's like you you were a couple of years early before the market knew they needed the solution, but you saw right. you saw the pain point. You knew there was a solution that was like, you know, not impossible to build. Obviously, there's some challenges, but it's not like trying to, you know, land a rocket on a space pad in the ocean or something. Like it's not that right. level of challenge. It's not horizontal drilling level of challenge. So uh like you saw a pain, a solution, and and you acted on it like two or three years ahead of when the market realized they needed that solution, which is like, and you know, I think that's the best possible timing because you had two to three years to work out all the kinks, you know, get right. the products ready, get get through the R and D, figure out your sales and marketing strategy, and then oh, by the way, just in time for when the market realizes they have this need, you're on the scene with the solution. Yeah, and we were actually excited. We had a couple of early adopters um, that really helped us get the software kind of dialed in, and that was that was helpful. And and we talk about sales and marketing. I want to say probably we spent quite a bit on our marketing uh, in early days because it was just unknown. So we had to a bigger expense there than we, we would have now trying to just get the, you know, digital field ticketing idea out there and um, make our brand name and, and basically create, create this marketplace. Um, so that was, um, it was, I'm gonna say it was painful. It was challenging. It was interesting. And then now we can kind of go back, refine our marketing, um, update, we're updating some of our branding right now. And it's, it's really exciting. Like I said, those RFPs come in, we're like, sweet. You know, we, we could get marketed qualified leads. People open the emails, right? Like what's our click-through rate? It's amazing. Cause before like, what are you talking about? I don't need this. I have Excel spreadsheet. <laughs> yeah. Know? Yeah. That's cool. Um, all right. So pivoting a little bit. Uh, so, um, you uh you're you're a non-technical founder you, you started this business on the premise that you were in the industry you understood the industry you understood understood the pain points and the solutions and you saw a way that software could solve the problem and i see that so much so much i see there's so many founders that come out of industry you know whether it's something like this like more of like uh you know industrial or manufacturing kind of industry or whether it's insurance or whether it's you know something else like i've seen a bunch of different uh you know founders come out of a specific industry and then build a build a software company a SaaS company to solve a solve a need and they often underestimate how much money and time it takes to build software and get it to market and then to sell it and actually you know get uh get past like a j curve where you know the j curve is where yeah. you know for the people listening visualize like a horizontal line you start at zero you start you know when you're building a company like this you start spending so you're automatically going into the hole and losing money and at some point you hit that break even point. And then from then on out, hopefully you're profitable and you're like, you're on the other end of the J you're past the horizontal line. You've passed the J curve. Uh, how much, uh, like how much time and money have you invested in development? Like just you know, kind of like a rough order of magnitude. Um, so one thing to just note is I wasn't in the software industry. So you say non-technical, I did have a little bit of coding experience. I knew SQL, I knew C++. I did a lot of caddying. So when we get into this, that's why I naturally fell as the co-founders into the product role, because I knew a little bit about that. And it was cool from the sales and marketing standpoint, one of the other co-founders was, you know, real into economics. So he kind of knew that side. So we were able to kind of divide and conquer, which was nice. But as far as going to like how much has cost us? Heck, I, I don't know if I could share that number. <laughs> My investors might kill me. Oh, okay. um, but <laughs> but um, yeah, it, it's definitely a lot. But it's of like time. probably millions of dollars. Yeah, I would millions of imagine. dollars. We we did 
just talking about the initial beta, um, we did that all bootstrap because we knew we could do something light to start with because we just had to replace that paper, right? We need to track 20 fields. We need to give some geo tracking. We needed like a request and approval cycle, right? So we started with that initial product offering. And so you and your co-founders built that first version? Yeah, we did that. We bootstrapped that ourselves. Um, many, many years without paychecks. That was fun. Um, and then we... Uh, we got to a certain revenue milestone and we, 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 before we got there, we did take on some friends and family money after we got that version out there, had an initial customer, we took some family, friends and family money. Then we did a series a, once we got to about a million dollars in revenue, we did a series a, and that's when we were able to then really kind of, you know, escalate the development, um, build in some additional processes, build out that implementation team, build out that sales revenue engine, do that major marketing campaigns that I was talking about. So yeah, it took us, took us about that first two years of either just our own money, a little bit of friends and family money until we get to that million dollars of revenue point. And then we were able to kind of really start accelerating um, quicker, but that's where we realized, Hey, we need to fine tune our processes and make this repeatable. So that way we could um, scale faster. Yeah, that so that million dollars is like such a milestone for SaaS and for uh, for tech companies. It's like there's the zero to one, and then there's the one to n. So n yeah. could be you know how big's your industry, how big's your market. It could be billions of dollars. So there's like the zero to one concept where it's like this is an idea, and I want to get it to like proven. And that's you know one million dollars is kind of like a good like if you can hit a million dollars in run rate or you know uh, yeah. you know uh, annualized MRR kind of thing. That's uh, uh, you know, so kind of like taking the monthly recurring revenue, multiplying it by 12, you can get to like a million dollars there. That's kind of like a proven, all right, there's a business model here. Uh, it might even be lower. Maybe it's like 25 or 50K MRR to kind of prove the the, the niche or whatever. But uh, from there, you go from like the founder hat to like a true like executive CEO hat. Like how do I take from one to N? How do I scale a business out of this? How do I create processes, create repeatable sales? How do I figure out like the cost of acquiring customers? How do I get, you know, gross margins on, you know, selling this versus, you know, what's our general administrative cost? What's our sales cost? What's our burn rate? Like all this, there's all this stuff that goes into like being a CEO at that level. Uh, and obviously your goal is to get, you know, as big as possible in the market and then expand into other markets, uh, which, uh, and and not everyone does both. Like there's some there's some founders that are just zero to one people. There's some CEOs and executives that are just one to n people. Uh, where do you have the most fun? Like, have you did you enjoy the founder stage more? Do you enjoy this stage more? Do you feel like you're like kind of better suited for one or the other? Um, I like the I like both. I like let's go bookends. The middle stage I didn't like. Like right about that one million I didn't like because it was hectic. Um, we were, I don't want to say we're stretched thin, but we were, everyone's wearing mini hats. I like the very beginning because it's kind of like, is there a market? Like, is our idea any good? You know what I mean? I actually have like one of our first transactions of receipts, tickets on my desk because it's like, hey, there is actually a market for this. You know, that part was very exciting. You know, getting out there in the field, me and the other co-founder, we rode around in trucks like in the middle of the night a few times just to see like what these guys' workflows were and to make sure like what we were building was, I like to refer to it as fat finger friendly for them because they have gloves on. They're like using, you know, styluses on phones, you know, to make sure all of that worked. And I like where we're at now. We're like, like that, let's get repeatable processes. Let's now let's run a business um, with, we know our customer's acquisition costs. We know what our marketing cost is. We know if we want to scale, 
power revenue has to scale now. So this is more fascinating to me because like I'm an engineer, as mentioned before. So just learning like, oh, board meetings, these are how they work, you know, like all of that <laughs> stuff was just kind of fascinating to me um, from a business standpoint. Um, that's why I kind of like we're at now, but that middle section, just trying to get from that friends and family money to that series A money and using that series A money um, correctly was a little nerve wracking for me. I didn't like that. I didn't like that part as much as I did as the early days and as where we're at now. It's funny how like the CEO role changes so much. Like I, I have a, a company too, and I'm about 80 employees roughly now. And it's like, I used to code back in the day and then it's like, I used to do sales and now it's, you know, I just kind of like strategize and, you know, figure out financial metrics and, you know, uh, people metrics and figuring out how to optimize. It's kind of like, I'm, you know, at a, it's almost like I'm operating a machine, watching all the dials and like making right. small tweaks everywhere. Uh, and I'm sure there's a stage beyond that where other people are doing those things. And now I'm like even a step removed and abstracted above that too. So it's, it's really, uh, interesting uh it's fun at times stressful at times it's interesting how like the role of a ceo evolves over time and uh you know some people i think some people are why like you know for instance look at somebody like mark zuckerberg who's who's the founder of facebook and also the ceo of you know whatever their market cap is like 500 billion dollar market cap publicly traded company now like that the level of transitions he had to make to get from where he started to where he is now successfully. And some might argue he's not successful. I personally think he's he's pretty successful at what he's doing. Uh, you know, obviously there's steps along the way that were missteps, like the whole metaverse thing might have been a a misstep yeah. last year. But uh, you know, there there's quite impressive what he's done. And how many transitionary moments he had to change his role and understand like what the most value most valuable decision is like what the most valuable use of his time is along the way. It's, it's quite fascinating to me. Yeah. And that's when, so my other co-founder, Robert Chinsky, he was our early on CEO. He ran the CEO till we got to about, I don't know, about 3 million ARR. And then he decided like, Hey, I'm going to just become a board member. I'm going to pursue other activities. And then we, our board brought in our current CEO. So I've always been lucky to kind of been like that VP of product, like in the weeds, not having to do the day in day out businesses. But yeah, that goes back to like, we got to a certain point, like, Hey, we need to like, we need to make a change. We need to keep, you know, our core um, co-founders intact, but we also need to, you know, let's, let's do, let's do what's best for the business. And that's hard for a lot of co-founders. Um, I'm actually probably going to change another role here in a few months uh, to kind of go help with some of the revenue, uh, revenue team and bring in a, another product professional to kind of help grow the product um, as we keep on scaling. That's cool. Yeah. Uh, so uh, I want to pivot, like just kind of brainstorm and riff with you uh, other opportunities uh, to do kind of like, what you're doing, but in other niches, was there anything else you wanted to close off on this chapter of the, the conversation before we move over? Nope. I'm good to pivot. So one that I saw the other day, that's like really interesting to me is valet services, like valet <laughs> logistics for parking cars, like, you know, managing, you know, like where cars are parked, you know, when the pickup is, there's a couple of companies doing it and their tech is really bad. And, it's uh, but what's funny, my brother owns a valet company um, in Hawaii. And one of our early test beds is I had his valets run our application for us. Um, it didn't really kick off because we were a little bit too um, robust for what they needed. But he had some of his valets run my application for me as some of our initial uh, beta testing um, 
back in 2017. But yeah, he's the same thing. He was looking for technology that would help him see where the car was, especially when they did private parties. Um, because private parties, a lot of times is at someone's house and they're parking in neighborhoods. So they have one guy driving a van, picking up other valets that are parking cars, you know, three or four blocks around. So they would come up with a, you know, a naming convention of where cars were parked and they put on the little, little valet ticket. The same thing is like, what is this? This guy has bad handwriting. What is this? Or why can't I just drop a pen and know where this car is and go get it? So that's why we kind of tried out our software a little bit to kind of to use it that way. But it was just too complicated for what they needed. We could take portions of our system and really streamline it to that industry. Um, I think somebody who like really understands how to code and really understands, you know, maybe someone who just did a valet job at some point in their life or like a soft, a good software developer founder that understands how to build businesses, just go get a valet job for a month and like figure it out. I think, yeah. I think somebody could build a, a the best valet software on the market with like heads down just a month, just get into it. It's a simple, I think it's a simple product. Just go heads down for a month, like work, like, you know, when I, when I get into a code hole, I'll work like 16, 18 hours at a time, go sleep, come back. I'll just be in a code hole for a month. I think I could build it in a month. Yeah, and I think you make hole. it. You can make it really excellent as well. Um, just what's your ticket number? Where's a car parked? Maybe the type of car. GPS, how long it's been there? GPS pin. Just give give a phone to the to the valets, and just like get in the car. And then also, there's like probably some insurance benefits there too. Like you can track. All right, are they like burning out and speeding down the street? You know, if someone's doing a private party and there's like you know. Ferrari's showing up. Are they like, you know, going hundred miles an hour down the highway or something? Are they going yeah, where they're supposed Bueller's to go? Off. What's that? Ferris, Ferris Bueller's day off. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> that's a good one. No, um, that's, that's one thing that we actually did in our applications. We started embedding um, a lot of um, tracking, like speed tracking, um, heading tracking, breadcrumbing. And that's been very valuable for some of that ESG work. Um, but even at, like you're saying for valet, that would work. Another, another market that we've, we've looked at a little bit is some of the refrigerated truck um, tracking, because that's really important. One second uh, before we move on to that, that can backfire actually. So my wife uh, used to runs she used to like be a product manager at comcast and apparently they put something in place i forget the exact uh you know legit i forget the exact like reasonings for it but they put something in place to uh like some metric that they were putting on the truck driver like the the technicians the field technicians that you know it was like idle time or something yep so they would just go in and like they'd go into a house and just leave the truck uh, I forget if they would, I think it was like time the truck was off or something. I, I don't remember, but they would just leave the trucks idling for some reason. Oh, just so they wouldn't look like the truck was. There's sitting. some metric they had yeah. to hit that looked good. And like a way they could rig it was just, you know, when they're in working on the house, working on the, on the home, just leave the truck running. And then that would like satisfy some metric that yeah, I, didn't achieve the thing they were trying to achieve. No, we run into that just cause we really like to keep our application, um, as a free download, there's limitations to things we could do. And we get asked that a lot of times, like, I want to track all the time. I was like, oh, no, if they force close the app, we're limited to what the iPhone and Play Store um, let us do here. And that's a lot of times when we communicate that to our customers, they're like, okay, yeah, we get it. Want to be a free download. But yeah, we try to be real mindful of just going back to the data privacy that we were talking about to get into this. Um, be real mindful to that on the data we do track, but we also want to provide our customers with the data they need. Um, to evaluate their operations. Yeah. Okay. Uh, I cut you off back to the refrigerator business idea. Oh, no. Yeah. No, another one is fr refrigerator um, 
trucks because they need time tracking is very important um, when food is in transit as well as temperatures of trucks. So we've looked at that market. I mentioned earlier uh, another adjacent market, just like dirt and construction, very similar to some of the current operations we do in oil and gas. And then just general deliveries. You know, always always like to use that restaurant of uh, delivery with that carbon copy paper. I still see those to this day. So there, there's, a, there's a lot of market out there for what we could provide. Um, we've stuck with oil and gas because that's what we know. Um, and we're doing our research to see where we could expand. So if any of your listeners are interested, you know, give us a call. Yeah, that's cool. So uh, it's interesting, like the food service one, there's so many POS companies in the food service space, like Square has an offering, there's uh, Aloha, there's like, you know, a do- like half a dozen or a dozen software companies doing POS for restaurants. It's amazing they still, I think some some are digitizing, maybe it's just the restaurants aren't, aren't maybe they're just kind of like slow laggards to adopt. But uh so I have seen some restaurants, I'm here in Philadelphia, I've seen some restaurants have screens in the kitchen. Mm-hmm. Whereas, you know, especially like the more corporate ones like Starbucks and stuff, they have like that, that like countdown for every order, like ticking in your face, I guess, while you're back there as the barista. You can see it as the customer too. like look over and it's like, wow, that looks stressful. But, uh, you know, there's still a lot of restaurants, you're right, that use tickets, which is interesting to me. Well, I guess maybe I should clarify a little bit on that. So not internal to the restaurant like the third party distributors that are delivering to restaurants. They're the ones that are doing these deliveries with the carbon copy paper because they're not tied into that POS. You know, they're tied into whatever their internal tracking system is. And they need a way to transfer that data, you know, from that third party delivery to that actual restaurant. Uh-huh. Um, yeah. Provided. Yeah. Point. yeah. Interesting. Okay. So you're thinking you're, yeah, you're, you're like full in logistics mode. I love it. So yeah. are these like, are these markets you think you can expand into with engage or are these just uh, just general kind of like markets that you're just riffing on? Yeah, I think we can expand to them and engage. We've done some initial research, um, the food industry, some of the construction industry, some of the aviation industries are our biggest targets right now, but there are, there's ones we probably haven't even looked at that it's, you know, one problem that we run into in those other industries is we don't understand the full logistics as well as we do in the oil and gas. So we've are still in that research mode, making sure we understand that end to end process and how data is transferred. Like, you know, how does that order get placed for that restaurant third party delivery and how do they enter that paper receipt into the POS machine? You know, that's kind of like where we're at for that example, we're, we're expanding those bookends on how that data could be transferred because we're big on let's integrate that information and remove that human touch point and um, make it a little bit more sticky at the same time. Yeah. It's, it's so important to, uh, to have a um, subject matter expert that understands the market. Like if you just try to, if you're like a tech person and you're trying to build for an industry, you don't understand, it's like, you're trying to solve problems that you don't, like it's, you know, you're, you're basically trying to fit solutions into a problem as opposed to you always need to start with the problem and work the solution around the problem. So it's like the I've seen that so much, too. You know, I have obviously like I'm a tech guy, so I have a ton of software friends that are always trying to branch out and build SaaS businesses. And if you start with if you start with tech, that's a common, a very common symptom that uh you know, not under, not truly understanding the niche or the pain point that you're trying to solve for. Uh, it's, you know, kind of like a, a recipe for failure. Uh, you know, a couple others. 
adjacent but uh interesting is this uh like home home heating oil and and propane delivery yep uh, I, I actually i have a i have like a side business that i run in that space and i understand that space a little bit uh but there's this company called energy engine and they're like the only e-commerce cms on the market that i know of that uh basically it's like kind of shopify but specifically for the oil and gas uh like sorry uh home when i say oil and gas i mean like home heating so like home heating oil and propane delivery uh and it lets it lets you kind of like build a website as a as a business and then your customers can go on register an account they can basically go on and place orders like they can set up their tank you know they can set up their their address and basically place orders for delivery and also they can go to multiple companies and kind of like shop the price too i think through their platform uh there's nothing like there's no one that competes with them and their software is terrible it's it's so bad uh it's there's no one that competes with them and i think there's an opportunity just to come in and even build a wordpress plugin that does like you could do it as a WordPress plugin. Interesting. Uh, there's, there's like nothing on the market that does what they do. And like th- these are those like little niches that unless you know about them, they just don't, you know, it, there's they just kind of go unsolved. And, yeah, I took a note when you said I took a note. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> cool. <laughs> Check it out. Um, but yeah, that's a good point. I, I, wanted to, I wanted to circle back. Just you hit it right. The nail on the head, having an industry expert. And just even when you mentioned the valet software, like just someone go work valet for a month and then you can figure out how to build the software, but trying to build the software without doing that is just, it's really, it's really complicated. Yeah. Yeah. I've seen that problem so many times. Uh, I don't have a specific example off the top of my head, but it's like, you know, when you have a bunch of tech friends, you know, there's like, we're constantly, you know, we'll go out for drinks and there's like 10 business ideas that come up, but you know, do we really understand those businesses or are we just like, you know, kind of just talking at our asses a little bit, you know, we're, it's, it's always like the, it's always like the, the solution side, you know, it's always like those conversations always lead with the solution and not necessarily coming from a place of like truly understanding the need. Yeah. Uh, and that was where we were lucky because we knew oil and gas. Actually, we had a lot of contacts in oil and gas. We did a little, um, we rented out a hotel, like meeting room for a day. We brought in about 10 of our, you know, I don't call them friends and families, but colleagues. And we talked about what we wanted to do, where we should focus. And from there, we actually got a great, we were able to refine our business plan. And that's really what helped us in the early years, that insight from those industry professionals that we already knew. And, um, you know, making sure we were looking at the correct workflows that were the biggest pain points. Yeah, yeah, it's cool. I got another one totally left field. It's not even related to what we've been talking about. Let's do it. you know, like ad blocking software that mm-hmm. blocks uh, like banner ads and like, you know, sponsored ads, even on Google, it can like take out the sponsored ads. You just install the browser extension and it just rips out all the ads. Uh, there is, uh, and there's even the Brave browser, which is like a whole browser that just has that natively built in. Uh, there is, uh, you know, a few plugins, a few Chrome extensions that are making like tens of millions of dollars per year on this ad blocking technology. And they, they're like the two that have been, you know, there's like, I think there's two main ones, like the two that are kind of like number one and two in the in the markets, they crush it. I had an idea to build an ad blocking, sort of like ad blocking, we'll call it an ad replacement, where uh, it takes out the ads on the page and replaces it with a new ad. Oh, it could still be like Google ads or somewhere, but like we split the revenue with the user. So like the business, replaces the existing ads with new ads and then the business who owns the extension 
now gets the ad revenue and splits it with the individual users who are receiving the ads. So now you get paid to get ads. Interesting. Your- yeah, I think I think there would be a lot of people be interested in that. There's actually um, a cell phone company that I can. It's Arrow, I believe, is the name of it. That's looking at something like that. Is I'm on grocery aisle six. It knows I'm here. The cell phone's free, but the ad comes in for, you know, here's my Cocoa Puffs. Oh, Cocoa Puffs, $2 off. And that's what they're actually looking at. So that's the same, same kind of um, idea. Yeah, Beacon Technology. That's really cool. Yeah. Yeah, you can like um, pinpoint down to like almost the the exact, you know, foot uh, where somebody is in, in a store. Yeah, and you can imagine that a lot of, uh, a lot of cell phone uh, providers are probably not too pleased with that idea. <laughs> 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 so there's probably some, there's probably some, uh, back channeling happening with that yeah man those industries uh you know like the uh internet service provider and like these cell phone industries they're they're interesting like they're kind of incestuous they all they're all like in business with each other but like they're competitors so like you know but they all rely on each other's networks and it's uh and then they you know they kind of pull together to like curt you know to kind of like tailor the regulations to to their benefits like the local you know, municipal and government, you know, kind of city regulations to their benefits. So it's like, it's, it's very interesting. And like, I would say it's one of those uh, kind of like old, old, uh, old boys kind of network businesses. Well, that's kind of where oil and gas is or was. Um, It's interesting now is we're starting to see where our application could help with regulatory requirements for a lot of oil and gas. Um, Here in Colorado, there's this thing called Reg 7, where if you did the produce so much oil yet you have to have a member from the oil and gas company like observe the onload to the truck so we could actually help that our customers do that work as well as we're starting to find more people want to track miles driven or where things were disposed of and our just simple geo tracking allows them to do that when they had nothing before so that regulatory requirements actually is helping us um move our product forward because people need some technology now and not everyone's going to put not every oil and gas operator is going to put a GPS tracking on every one of their service contractors' trucks. So just using a cell phone that's in what ninety-eight percent of people's pockets, <laughs> you could you can meet some regulatory requirements and helps with that um, good old boy network that we've seen before, and you know eliminate some of those regulatory regulatory pain points. As we Colorado is kind of always on the yeah. front of uh, you know regulatory change. I mean, you guys were like early on in like the weed. Whole, uh, yep. thing and like taxing that and making government revenue off that you know you're doing uh you, you've mentioned you know it kind of before we hit the record here you were talking about how you watched the episode we did with uh justin at Wirewheel, and yep. he talked specifically in that episode about how colorado is leading some of the data privacy regulatory moves in the united states along with california and new jersey uh so yeah i mean Col- colorado seems to be kind of like ahead of the curve when it comes yep. to reg- regulatory matters. Yeah, they, they definitely are uh, environmental friendly, people friendly. And I guess maybe that doesn't go with the weed, but I'm a big fan of syntax. <laughs> so yeah, when they did that, I was like, sweet, let's get some syntax on this. What's uh, that? Really, it's just taxes on like sin related activities. So oh, alcohol, sin, sin. Yeah, sin, yeah. So alcohol, cigarettes, weed, things like that. Um, so that's actually has been very great for the, the local governments as well as the state government because it's generated a whole bunch of extra revenue from tax uh, that they could then put back into schools and infrastructure and, and all of all of those things cool cool i'm curious uh have you heard about the um 
battery company. It's uh, American Battery Technologies. They're traded uh, as ABML as their ticker. They're actually a pink pink sheets company. Uh, I don't know if you heard about the lithium mines in Nevada, uh, but they own a bunch of land in Nevada that's apparently like they own the land. They just did a bunch of testing and it's very ripe for lithium right now as as a as a country we're very dependent like i think all the lithium mines are majority of the lithium mines are currently in china so we're very dependent on china for lithium and uh, obviously there's a lot of things we use lithium for but the main thing is for batteries and right. you know with all these electric vehicles and you know kind of push to move into electric it's very important uh that at least with the current battery technology that we have today, it's very important that, you know, we have enough lithium supply. And uh, this company, American Battery Technology Companies, I have a friend who's actually going to be coming on the podcast soon. Uh, and this is one of the things I'm going to talk with him about because he has a very big position in ABML. Uh, he took a huge bet with them. And I think he's like a sizable shareholder. And uh, they... Um, they, you know, they're a pink sheets, you know, over the counter traded stock today. But uh, the way he describes it, their, you know, their market cap is half a billion or so. Uh, he thinks it's a wow. trillion dollar market cap, you know, 10 or 10 to 30 years from now. And uh, he thinks they're the best position to win the market. Uh, they own this lithium mine in Nevada. There's like a lot of pushback. Their stock's been kind of jumping up and down like 30, 40% week over week. Because uh, they they have they own the mine they did the testing the tests came back like very good that there's lithium here you know there's like thirty mining thirty years worth of mining activities wow. lithium supply in this mine in northern Nevada the mine just happens to be like hundred miles from the Tesla Gigafactory so they're already setting up you know manufacturing plants right next to the Gigafactory in Reno yeah. uh, but there's all this you know uh, environmental concern and there's already you know like a lot of Anti anti lithium mine groups popping up and kind of you know speaking out pretty publicly against doing any mining operation in Nevada. I'm curious if you have heard about any of that or have any thoughts on it. Yeah, I haven't heard much about this in Nevada. I mean, lithium's always been an interesting one to me because you know from oil and gas, right? Let's get a petroleum, um, get away from petroleum. Let's move to more you know electric, um, you know, um, reproducible energy and you know batteries, lithium batteries and all that stuff has kind of fallen to that. My concern is like, what happens when the batteries, all this lithium, you know, these batteries are expended? Like, how are we? Well, that's what they uh, do. So they're, they're two businesses. So this this company, check out American Battery Technology. They, they yeah, do. Too. Their business is recycling lithium batteries, and then their other business is that they own this huge land in Nevada that's ripe with lithium. So they'll mine the lithium, and then they'll re they'll recycle the batteries that are used. So like Tesla Great. and like Ford and GM and all these companies will sell their or like give or whatever their used batteries to uh to to American battery technologies and then they like somehow recycle it and turn it back into new batteries. Yeah, no that that's kind of like that's always been my fear is like what's going to happen when the batteries, you know, need to be recycled. So that's awesome that they're on both ends of it. Uh, as a business model, you got to think that's the way to go, right? Yeah, yeah, it's interesting. I'll uh, I'll share with you the episode. My my, yeah, uh, my friend Adam's coming on. He's a he's a another software guy like me, but uh, he's uh, he's I don't know. He, he's he he understands this stuff. He he spends a lot of time researching it, and uh, I think he's coming on mid April. So that episode will probably go live like late April, and I'll share that with you when it goes up. Yeah, make sure to tell Adam if he needs a way to track where his lithium's going. I, I got a software for him. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> Send him my number. Oh. There you go. Yeah.
would, would you guys ever like, I mean, is this like a potential pivot for you guys? Do you see like the electric movement as a threat to the oil and gas industry? Or is it just like so big that it's not a threat in, you know, any time in the next few decades? Or what, what are your thoughts around that? Yeah, we don't see it as a threat. Um, we do recognize the five years we've been in business, like some of the some of the processes that were happening in 2016 are moving to a different process. So like, for instance, I mentioned moving um, water, like water is a byproduct of crude. And before it was trucked, everyone trucked it. Now a lot of people are moving that to pipelines. So what we've done in our software platform is like, well, how can we help monitor the pipelines? So we could do things. Of, so it just, uh, just for my clarity yeah. and for the listeners, the water, is that like gray water that's like toxic or something it's a byproduct from the operation and it needs to be cleaned yeah so so essentially it needs to be disposed of so when crude comes out of the ground there's water in the crude and they let it separate so the byproduct is water which needs to be disposed of which is an expense and then the crude itself could then be taken to a refinery to be processed made into you know uh, gas oil you know all those petroleum products so this water is needs to be handled a lot of times it is just re disposed of through a well bore into the ground. Um, it's just called a saltwater disposal. So it's high brine water. Um, it is very dirty. It's not potable. It's not paddable. And that is a big expense that we actually spend probably 60 of our 60% of our business on um, is tracking that water from the pickup at the well site and where it was disposed of, which is a big you know regulatory requirement, um, who did it, where it went. So that being a trucking event is a high cost. So oil and gas operators have spent a lot of infrastructure putting in pipeline to take this water from the wellhead to these disposals and take trucks off the road, take the expense of a truck driver. With that, um, for us, that trucking event, which was essentially one of those receipts um, every time, is starting to go down because they don't need it as much. But what we've been able to kind of pivot a little bit um, for the scenario is we do things like if the transfer pump goes down, um, we can monitor that with that SCADA information. We could then kick out truck orders. Um, two, we could transfer, or we could track by the change in tank height, how much went into those pipelines. Uh, so they can actually see what's been transferred and follow that around um, to help also use our software from that same movement of the water from the well site to the disposal, but now there's just not the independent person running our application tracking it. We're just using our current infrastructure with the data transfers to monitor those events, report on those events, and generate that ticket or receipt for that transaction happening. So uh, there's this like 10x concept that I think about uh, for uh, SaaS founders or, or any business for that matter. Uh, the easiest way to win a market is to make something 10 times better, 10 times cheaper, you know, or both, if you can do both, if you can make it 10 times better and 10 times yeah. cheaper. And it's like, you have a product, it's it's hard for the customer to say no. And you come in and say, hey, look, here's what the product can do. It can shave this much time, which equates to this much money. And by the way, we're gonna decrease your error rate you know, making your data that much better, making you that much more in compliance with regulations, make saving you this much money that can be redeployed to other initiatives. Uh, like that is, you know, also then to the CFO team, you're saying, hey, we're getting invoices out faster. You're getting, you're collecting revenue faster. We're shortening your cash flow cycles. Uh, like it, there's so many little things here. I mean, you, you can put it onto a slide, probably like three or four 
things that your product does from what just from what I've extracted from our call today, uh, that is the recipe to win, I think like it's, you know, having compelling statements, compelling use cases like that. It's hard, you know, going into a sales meeting with, you know, ex an executive of one of these companies, it's going to be really hard for them to say no. Right. To purchasing yeah. your product. And that's one thing that we've really focused on. And just like our pitch decks is like, who are we talking to? Like talking to the CFO. Let's talk about like day sales outstanding. Let's talk about like error rates. We're talking to the field um, operations. It's like, hey, let's talk about your man hour reduction. Let's talk about um, visibility into which you didn't have visibility before. And then we start talking to the C-levels. Like, hey, let's talk about your regulatory requirements. You know, like that's what your board cares about. That's what you care about. So it's kind of like we have great pitches for like the different personas that we're talking with. And um it's we actually brought a sales rep on earlier this year and she was like i finally have a product that i have a tangible roi to sell and she's just killing it she's now she should go out she could talk to different you know different users or different personas and be like this is what you get out of our product this is your return on investment and you know let's what's the next steps i love it man uh anything else you want to close with this has been an awesome episode uh, i would love to have you back sometime in the future but uh anything you want to close with at this point yeah, no, I want to say thanks for having me on. Uh, this has been awesome. I uh, just want to say to the listeners, if you guys are curious more about what Engage Mobilize does, our website's engagemobilize.com. Uh, check us out. Um, send me an email or whatnot. And uh, it's been exciting to hit, sit here and riff with you for a little bit. Yeah, Jeremiah. Thanks for coming on. Did you clear your cash flow?